Love is in the air and Minky Couture has the best gift ever for your Valentine. Don't give candy and flowers a die. Give a unique and luxurious gift that lasts. Show your love you care with a new hugs blanket from Minky Couture. Nothing says I love you like a warm, cozy Minky Couture blanket that hugs you back. Give them a hug, and while you're at it, give yourself a hug too. You deserve it. Minky Couture has the perfect blanket that says I love you. Shop stores and online at MinkyCouture.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Garden Gossip, the home and garden show, with your hosts, Lisa and Nancy, editors of BigBlendMagazine.com. David Mizajewski is back on Big Blend Radio's Garden Gossip Show today to, to give us some good gossip about cool. what the birds and the bees want in the garden. <laughs> He's going to teach us how to attract pollinators and birds, and especially this fall season. Uh, David is the author of the how-to book called Attracting Birds, Butterflies, and Other Backyard Wildlife. He's a naturalist with the National Wildlife Federation and an expert spokesperson uh, for the organization's Garden for Wildlife program that totally rocks. Uh, since 1973, uh, they've been empowering people to turn their garden spaces into thriving habitats for birds, butterflies, and other wildlife. In other words, we don't want dead zones in our communities. We want flourishing gardens for, for all the good critters out there. That's right. Because they're all good, quite including frankly. Including us. Including us. Uh, go to the website nwf.org, and if you want to learn about their gardening program, go to nwf.org forward slash garden. But welcome back, David. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. Hey, we're always excited. The last time you were on the show, we were talking about uh, the Be Sponsible campaign, and um, I promised that I would start photographing or gathering photos from my collection of bees. And I have to tell you, I learned so much uh, doing that and uh, posting it up on social media. And I know a lot of friends and stuff are like, okay, what's up with this bee thing? And then <laughs> I really learned that half of what I thought were bees weren't bees, and what I thought we're not bees, we're bees. Um, that was such an interesting thing. I didn't realize how many beetles we have in Arizona. Yeah. I learned a lot about beetles from doing the bees. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really interesting. Once you, you know, I like to think about <clears throat> learning about nature as learning a new language. You know, imagine you're off in a foreign country somewhere, you don't speak the language, um, and everything, you know, is, you can't understand what people are talking about. But the minute you start learning to recognize a couple words here, a phrase there, suddenly, you know, this, this kind of light bulb goes off and you begin to understand a little bit. It's the same thing with nature, whether it's learning bird calls or um, frog calls or insect noises or even just, you know, identifying what's the difference between, you know, a bee and a fly and a beetle. Once you have those little small pieces of information, they become like tools in your toolbox for a whole new way of perceiving the world. And that, of course, is one of the reasons why at the National Wildlife Federation, we spend so much time trying to get people, kids in particular, connected to nature. Because, you know, if you don't have the opportunity to go outside, you never really have the opportunity to make those connections. And therefore, you don't really understand or, you know, uh, have a good sense of what's going on in the natural world. And if that's the case, then you don't really care about it and you don't want, want to protect it. So it's all connected. And yeah, I mean, doing something like going out and taking pictures of quote unquote bees, so simple, right? Anybody could do that right in their own yard or neighborhood, and you never know what you're going to learn. Mm -hmm. I learned that they like 
native plants more than anything. The roses, the antique roses, they seem to like, but it was really interesting to me to go like even in nurseries because we've done a lot of uh, photography just on the on the on the business side of our life of nurseries and it's one of my favorite things to do is go in a nursery. But what was so fascinating, every photo I had, it, it really funny. If it was a bee or a hummingbird or you know anything like that, they hung out in the native plant side. But when I went and looked at the flowers on the other side, they weren't there. They knew in the nursery that this was. Like there was one nursery and it was like, here's the California native plant display. That's the only place I saw the, the bees hang out and, and yeah. the hummingbirds right there. Well, they that's, you know, there you go. That's, that's why we try to teach yeah. people what the connections between the native plants of any given region are and their native wildlife. I mean, these species have co-evolved with each other over, you know, tens and maybe even hundreds of thousands of years. And they depend on each other. I mean, plants are the foundation of habitat. That is why a wildlife conservation organization like the National Wildlife Federation has a garden program, because what you plant matters. It makes a huge difference. And you know, as we've talked about in the past, you know, unfortunately, with, you know, it's easy to suffer from uh, what I call green blindness. You know, you look outside and you see, you know, beautiful yards and you think, oh, these are really great and natural and good for the environment. But the unfortunate reality is that the standard for our landscapes are lawns that really support no wildlife and then a very small palette of non-native plants, most of which don't support any wildlife. So when you think about that and you think about the fact that you know, these kinds of plants, non-native plants, are planted literally coast to coast and dominate the landscapes in our cities and towns and neighborhoods, even in rural areas, you know, how little wildlife habitat they, they provide. And you kind of begin to see that there are these big, as you call them, sort of, you know, dead zones where there's not the plant material to support wildlife. So if everybody can just plant a few more native plants out there in their own gardens, in their own yards, in their own neighborhoods, we can make a pretty significant impact on providing a little bit of additional good habitat for animals like bees, native bees, butterflies, birds, even amphibians that don't eat plants, but they eat the insects that eat the plants. So right. it's all connected. Well, you said also that mm. I kept getting these beetles. And man, it's crazy when, when it's a native plant area, like you'll have like a bunch of species on one flower. It's like, whoa, look at that, right? Mm -hmm. But the beetles, and you, you made a point on, on one of the Instagram posts that beetles are also important pollinators. And it's so funny because we think about pollinators. I think the first thing people think of, bees, butterflies, and hummingbirds. After that, mm -hmm. we forget about the bats and the beetles. I was like, that's right. The beetles, they crawl around and mm -hmm. do things too. So they're important. Absolutely, yeah. There are whole whole um, groups of beetles that really specialize in feeding on flowers, and therefore are pollinators. You know, beetles are very a very diverse group of animals, um, and different kinds of beetles have different ecological functions. Some of them are predatory, you know, but again, there's groups of them, like the, the longhorn beetles, that feed on plants. So um, there's even, I think, a group called flower beetles, um, not coincidentally. So, um, so yeah, absolutely, and you're right. The bees do take up the, the lion's share of the, the public's awareness about pollinators. And, you know, not without reason. Bees are highly evolved, co-evolved with plants and actually are very diverse. You know, here in North America, we've got over 4,000 native bee species. That's not counting the honeybee, which is really a domesticated species brought over from Europe. Um, and globally, there's 20,000 bee species. So 
you know, they had these very, very intricate relationships with the native plant material. And in fact, many bees are pollen specialists and can only really gather the pollen to feed their babies from very specific plants. Um, and, you know, their bodies are just designed to carry pollen from flower to flower and assist in the pollination, which really is plant reproduction. So um, they're important. But even if they do, uh, you know, earn kind of the top billing as, 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 as most important pollinators, bees aren't the only pollinators, like you were saying. Butterflies and moths are also pollinators to a limited degree. But even more so, there's a lot of flies that are actually really important pollinators. In fact, there is a group of flies called the surfid hoverflies or, other, or, or flowerflies is their other name. Um, they're really, really important pollinators. Beetles as well. There's lots of beetles that are pollinating. Wasps. You know, the list goes on. So there's lots of creatures um, in the insect world and beyond. Um, and yeah, you mentioned the two species of pollinating bats that we have in the, uh, the desert southwest. I mean, who would have thought that bats are pollinators, right? Um, and in other parts of the world, there's even um, other kinds of birds and even possums that serve as, as animal pollinators of plants. So yeah, there's a lot of different pollinators out there beyond the bees. That's cool. And, and birds, um, you know, fall season comes, and, and I think fall to me is like, you know, winter's spring. You know, like I, I love those, those subtle seasons where this real change happens, um, and we see leaves start to fall. Uh, we, you know, that kind of thing happen. And I, and I wanted to touch on that because people get in, it's actually a really good planting time from what I know for trees and, and things yep. like that. Um, but this is when people start raking up the leaves. And isn't that one of the first things we should not do is um, because that becomes a habitat for, for um, critters as well in our garden. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, fall, you know, depending on where you live, if you, you know, not everybody lives in an area where there's a lot of deciduous trees that are going to yeah. you know, drop leaves. But, you know, if you live in an area that, you know, that's the natural way of things where all the, you know, the deciduous trees lose their leaves, you know, it's kind of crazy. It's, 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 it's kind of the, 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 the twin phenomenon um, that goes along with mowing your lawn. You know, you water your lawn and you put fertilizers on your lawn to make it grow. And then every weekend you have to spend half the day mowing the thing and hauling away the clippings. Um, you know, it's kind of crazy. And then, and then you go out and you pay money for fertilizer when you could, if you just let it compost, um, the clippings compost or, um, or mulch in, then you wouldn't have to do that. It's the same thing with leaves, right? We spend all of our weekends in the fall raking up these leaves, bagging them up, um, putting them in the trash where they end up in the landfill, and that's a really bad thing. Um, or, and then again, we go out and we pay money for fertilizer to fertilize our garden beds instead of just keeping the leaves where they are because they are the natural mulch and they're the natural fertilizer. You know, when those leaves fall, they break down as a natural mulch, and then they return the nutrients to the soil that the plants need to grow and live. So there's, there's a reason right there to leave your leaves where they fall. But beyond that, as you've noted, the leaf layer in, in, a, in a wooded area is a habitat. It's a whole ecosystem, in fact. There's all sorts of creatures that live in that leaf layer, mostly invertebrates, all sorts of insects and spiders and millipedes and other invertebrates, which are really cool wildlife in and of themselves. But even if you don't care about them, they're the food source for a lot of birds. You know, birds like thrushes and robins and um, brown thrashers. There's a whole host of woodland birds that specialize in feeding um, on, the, on the forest floor in the leaf layer. 
And without that leaf layer, you're not going to see those birds in your area. So, you know, the leaf layer is important for, you know, protecting the plant's roots, providing a natural mulch, being a natural fertilizer, and it's also habitat. So, again, you know, we recognize that not everybody is going to be able to or even want to just have all the leaves fall where they fall, right? And yes, if you have a lawn and it gets covered in leaves, that could potentially smother your lawn. So our recommendation at the National Wildlife Federation is just, you know, do what you can. So maybe, um, you know, you can't leave all the leaves everywhere in your yard, but maybe you can rake them into your garden bed and have them serve as a mulch. Um, you could even put them into like a big trash can and run a... Uh, a uh... As a parent, no two days are ever the same. And let's face it, sometimes a little extra help goes a really long way. That's what's so great about Care.com. They make it easier than ever to find local, experienced, and background check childcare to help manage your family's ever-changing needs and schedule. From nannies and babysitters to daycare centers and tutors, find help for long or short-term support. Whether you need an after-school sitter or help with homework, there's a large selection to choose from. And all caregivers who use Care.com are required to complete a background check before they're able to interact with families on the platform. It's so easy. Just go to Care.com and post a job for caregivers to apply. You can search for qualified candidates, read reviews and ratings, check their availability and send messages directly. You can even find other kinds of care, including housekeepers, dog walkers and caregivers for seniors. Find care for all you love. Sign up now and see why over 3 million families use Care.com. Visit Care.com today. Hey, what's up? It's Alex Morgan. And for me, the start of the new year is all about commitments. Setting your intentions, restarting your routine, and committing to you from day one. Body Armor Light, the low-calorie, zero-sugar-added sports drink. Shop now at Walmart. A weed whacker down into it to chop them up into a little bit more of a kind of like a leaf mold that won't blow away as easily if you want to use it as a mulch. Um, you know, maybe you reduce the size of your lawn and let, you know, let <laughs> some go. of the leaves lie where they are, right? So there's ways that you can do this without having a messy looking yard or getting your neighbors, you know, all up in arms. You know, at a minimum, even if you do rake up all your leaves, you should try composting them and, mm-hmm. you know, put them in a big compost bin, turn it a few times and come spring, you'll have rich compost that you can use as fertilizer and mulch in your garden. So, you know, again, rather than sending it off to the landfill where it's going to sit in a in a landfill and produce methane gas, which is one of our worst greenhouse gases. And it comes from break, breaking down um, organic material like leaves and other things like that. So, so yeah, the leaves, leave the leaves if you can. That's it. I'm going to have a bumper sticker. Leave the leaves. <laughs> leave the leaves, man. Keep off the leaves, man. Uh, but the other thing too, um, you know, we look at fall is, is, is a migration time for birds. Yep. And, you know, I think about that, like, do you change what you grow? I mean, I know that we have to, you know, if you're growing annuals and not perennials, I mean, different things flower at different times. I mean, and, and what happens? I mean, do bees hang out in the fall? Do bats hang out in the fall? Well, everybody thinks of bats for Halloween, right? right. But right. I think October is bat month or there's bat week. Um, but that, that whole change happens and suddenly you'll have different birds in your yard. I know that the owls change what they're, what they're doing mm-hmm. <laughs> in the fall out here. Um, yeah. So do you change what you plant Do you, uh, for the different kinds of birds that may fly through and stop over? Yeah, I mean, so, so what you're touching on is different survival strategies to deal with seasonal change, right? So mm-hmm. there are some animals that go into hibernation or go dormant. There are some animals that fatten up during the fall in preparation for the winter. 
And then there are some animals that migrate. Um, and they, they might either pass through your area or leave your area altogether or use where you are as their southern habitat. You know, you're south for them. So when you're thinking about your wildlife garden, you want to think about these things and try to, you know, think about, well, okay, so I know that the chipmunks are, you know, getting ready to go into their winter dormancy and they really need to store up a lot of food. What can I do to help them? Um, I know that the, um, the, the, the warblers are going to be migrating through that have bred up in Canada and the northern U.S. and they're going to pass through my area over the course of, you know, a month or two during the early fall. So what could I plant to support them? You, know, you want to think like that. Um, you want, also want to think about what are your resident birds, you know, your winter resident species that don't fly south or don't hibernate. And again, depending on where you live, um, you know, that could be any number of species. But, you know, where I am in the Washington, D.C. area, that's things like bluebirds and cardinals and mockingbirds and even the robins. Um, you know, people think of robins as, oh, the sign of the spring, they migrated back. But the reality is in most of the lower 48, robins, um, they stick around for the winter or they migrate only short distances. What they tend to do, though, is flock up into wooded areas so you don't see them as often. Um, and then come spring when the insects and the worms come back out, then you start seeing them a little bit more in your neighborhoods. But um, so, yeah, so you want to be thinking at this time of year, what can I be adding to my yard? That's going to help out the, you know, first and foremost, the fall wildlife. But also, fall is an incredibly good time in most parts of the country to be planting trees, shrubs, and perennials. So be thinking about how to provide food sources and cover for fall wildlife. But also, you know, think about the spring and the winter and the summer, too, because it's a good time to add those plants to your yard. Now, as far as the fall goes, you know, what, what do you want to be thinking about? Well, most migratory birds that are going to be passing through are going to be looking for native burying shrubs and insects as their fuel source to fuel their migration. So again, this is going to depend on what part of the country you're in. You know, there's different plants that are going to be more appropriate for different parts of the country. But, you know, any native burying shrub that is putting berries out in the fall um, is going to be a really good choice. Um, you know, again, around here where I live in the mid-Atlantic, things like um, flowering dogwood, actually any of the dogwoods, um, are great sources of, of fruits, high-energy fruits to fuel bird migration. And this is another great example of coevolution. You know, I was talking about how bees have evolved so that their bodies are like perfect vehicles to move pollen from plant to plant and fertilize those plants. Well, native plants put out their food sources in the form of berries right at the same time that birds are migrating. The birds benefit because they get high calorie, you know, high sugar and, and even protein and fat in some cases, fruits that are going to fuel that migration. And the plant benefits because when the bird eats that fruit, there's seeds inside of it that don't get digested. And then the bird poops them out, which is a nice little fertilizer packet, you know, 100 miles away on its migration. And that's how the plant actually spreads. So it's really, really cool, these, these connections. So, yeah, yeah, so think about planting, burying trees and shrubs that are native to your area that have berries in the fall. Um, and then, you know, just in general, planting any native plants because native plants support insects. And insects, again, are cool wildlife, but they're also a food source for birds. And what about, you know, when you think about fall, um, you've got the birds, you, you're talking about berries um, and planting. You know, what about flowers? Do you, I mean, are there plants that are going to be, you know, flowering? I know some of the grasses get their seeds at that time, so it's a really mm -hmm. nice fuel source too. But um, when you start planting, do you recommend going to 
nurse, like obviously nurseries, but um, what about seeds versus live plants? Well, okay, so a bunch of questions in there. So yes, <laughs> in the fall, and I've got answers for them. Um, in the fall, um, yeah, beyond planting, burying things for the migrating birds, but and also you know the mammals like the chipmunks that I just mentioned that are trying to fatten up for the winter and caching food for the winter. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of of, of native perennial plants that are going to bloom right into the fall, like sometimes even to the frost, and those are particularly important sources of nectar and pollen for, well, migrating hummingbirds um, are pollen eaters and insects. Um, they eat insects. Um, animals like bees, you know, they're going to be active all the way up until the frost. So they need a food source. Um, and then one really important one are monarch butterflies, which are one of our few migratory insects. And they are really definitely on the lookout for good late season nectar to fuel their migration either down to Mexico, the entire population east of the Rockies from Canada south flies down to just a few spots in Mexico outside of Mexico City. And that's a long way to go for a butterfly. So they need that that nectar source in the form of late blooming native plants, you know, things like goldenrod, which by the way, does not cause allergies. Everybody thinks goldenrod, it's that yellow blooming yeah. flat wildflower that you see along the roadsides and the fields. Um, you know, at this time of year, and um, people think that causes allergies. It doesn't. Goldenrod is pollinated by animals, which means its pollen grains are relatively big, and they're designed to stick to the bodies of the bees and the butterflies and the beetles that visit it, not to float away on the wind. And so generally speaking, any plant with showy flowers is not a plant that generally is going to cause you allergies unless you stick your nose in it and, and inhale all the pollen. It's wind-pollinated plants things like pine trees and grasses that don't have showy blooms because they don't have to attract wildlife. And the reason they don't have to attract wildlife to their flowers is because they use the wind to move their pollen instead of the wildlife. And that's the kind of plant that generally causes our allergies because their pollen grains are windborne and we breathe them in. So ragweed is oftentimes the cause of your seasonal allergies and it just so happens that ragweed is putting out its pollen at the same time that goldenrod is blooming and goldenrod got blamed. So anyway, goldenrod, um, asters, um, there's native asters all around the country that bloom in the late summer into the fall. Um, again, this is going to depend on where you live. Um, things like ironweed and joe pieweed, um, these are eastern plants that uh, are really good fall bloomers. So yeah, again, you just want to do a little bit of research. You can you can check out your local native plant society, depending on where you live. If you go to the National Wildlife Federation's Garden for Wildlife website, you can use our native plant finder. And so this is a really neat tool that we're working on with some of the leading um, scientists looking at the impact of native plants on wildlife populations in urban and suburban areas, um, specifically Dr. Doug Tallamy. And so we have used his research and created this neat tool where you can put in your zip code and you will get a ranked list of the best native plants specifically to be caterpillar host plants for butterflies and moths. Um, and, but they also, in doing so, become some of the best plants to support your bird population because guess what? Those caterpillars and moths are a critical food source for most backyard bird species. So that's a good place to go. Um, you know, the, the, the plant finder isn't, you can't sort it by fall blooming plants per se, um, or by plants that have berries for birds, although those are the kinds of 
overlays we're hoping to put on it in the future, but it's a really good place to start to get a list of some of the really good native plants for your area that you can add to your garden this fall. I think that I, I was on there today and everyone again, that's nwf.org forward slash native plant finder. I typed in our zip code and it was, it was really cool to see some of the, some things I thought were not native were native. And so I was like, oh, well, this is really cool. And I also learned from there just like how many caterpillars a bird needs to survive. I was like, um, yeah. oh my God, we, we need trees. We need to start planting, man, because they need yeah. a lot of caterpillars. Well, let, let, I, you, since you brought it up, I think let's share some of those numbers. Um, again, this is some of the research of Dr. Doug Tallamy from the University of Delaware. Um, you know, they looked at chickadees and calculated how many insects a pair of chickadees had to capture in the springtime in order to successfully raise one brood of young over like a 16-day nesting period. And it turns out that those two tiny little birds needed to catch between six and 9,000 insects, mostly caterpillars, in order wow. to raise just one nestful of babies successfully. Six and 9,000. And they only hunt for them within about like 150 meters of the nest. So again, this is, this is wildlife habitat wow. and wildlife conservation on the scale of your backyard. You know, yeah. if you have the right plants in your yard and you can not only, that will not only draw the birds like the chickadees to nest there, but you'll be helping them to make sure that there's a next generation. And, you know, compare that to a lawn. It does nothing. You know, you're not going to see those birds. You're not going to be able to help them raise their babies and make sure that their species has a future. Wow. It's so important to know that because, you know, and, and also talking about like how, close they stay to home like I, I even just in some of our you know parks and refuges Nancy and I know okay the phenopeplas hang out here we've actually even even in where we go walk in the mornings mm -hmm. out in our yard here we, we we have started to know the javelina pathways mm -hmm. they have their little babies out right now and it's so cool they roll in the mud like warthogs they're I the know. coolest <laughs> coolest animals I know people want to eradicate them or whatever but membership fees apply after free trial cancel anytime can I be real for a second that goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Stop it. They're cool. Leave yeah, in the neighborhood. I, <laughs> I sidebar and javelina. They are some of my favorite animals, um, mostly because we don't have them, you know, back east. And yeah. it's actually only the very lucky few people in America it, it live in their habitat like you guys do. And yes, they're like any other animal that is able to take advantage of, of a good resource. And they can sometimes cause a little bit of grief in your garden, you know, and again, depending on where you live. It could be a raccoon, it could be a white-tailed deer, it could be an armadillo, but most of the time, with a few simple behavior changes on our part, we can minimize the worst of that conflict, so we don't have to get into the conversation about, let's eradicate them. 
Um, yeah. I, I say celebrate them. You know, you're Fantastic. lucky to have Havelina because most other Americans can't say that. It's pretty cool. We, well, it's extended our wine time because when <laughs> there's like <laughs> we okay. know when they come out, so now we're like, okay, we go out and have wine time just to watch the, you know, the, here comes the little piggies. I know they're not yeah. pigs, they're peccaries, but that's um, right. It, they are they are so cool and they're little babies and how they roll around and sometimes we see them in in the mornings when we go walking and. Um, they come out, and what they do in our area is we have a ton of Palo Verde trees. They come and they eat the seeds, the seed mm -hmm. pods. And mm -hmm. uh, so it's really interesting to see them. And I, it, it's just you start to know animals' habit, their habits, um, how they hang out. And from what I can tell, just even in hikes, pretty much animals are, and birds are territorial. Uh, deer, there's, I've learned that about deer. They're going to hang out in that same mm -hmm. area, that same vicinity. Uh, birds, like we were saying, there's, there's a paint of pepla nest. He is always here. There's yep. the cardinals over here. That's a cool thing about being out here in the desert. We have northern cardinals. I just, it still so, blows my mind. It's so trippy to me, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's cool. You see those yeah. red, you know? Uh, see, but, I think that uh, having the Cenopeplas is pretty cool because that's another species that you only have in your neck of the woods. We don't have them anywhere else. Oh, so. I didn't know that. Yeah. They're so cool. They're so beautiful. They're so, yeah. cool. they're, they're just absolutely beautiful. But yeah, you start to learn and then you become very aware. Like I start to think, okay, someone spraying Roundup over on the other side. Um, is someone doing this? Because, and I always start to wonder also, I know a lot of us want to put bird seed out and things like that. And I start to wonder just like what we eat, you know, if we're putting bird seed out, how much of that is, um, maybe GMO, maybe just like the waste of, you know, you know how even we have to watch what our dogs and cats are eating now, um, what's in our food. And I wonder about that for birdseed. Um, can we get Yeah, I don't know of any research that has looked at, yeah. you know, if there's any kind of nutritional issue with the seed that's grown commercially. Um, but I have to guess that they're probably, that stuff is probably monitored. Um, but that's, you know, that's something that if you're curious about, I'm sure you could probably um, dive into yeah. the internet and, you know, of course, weed through a lot of the, the hoopla, um, but you might track some of that down. You know, a good place to check if you're curious about that, um, that my go-to stop for all things um, bird related and specifically bird feeding related is the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Yeah. Um, they have a fantastic website. They have a whole feeder watch program. Um, and, you know, as far as bird feeding goes, I mean, even us at the National Wildlife Federation, we, you know, I kind of follow what Cornell is putting out on, as far as the latest best practices when it comes to things like bird feeding. And so I haven't seen anything from Cornell or other reputable places like that about issues associated with, um, with bird seed and nutrition. But um, if you're curious, I bet you could probably find more information on their website. I think also the is plant the plants they need, you know, because that's the thing. The fall, I think they you get more seeds, you know, and that was the other thing was, um, do we is seed better than live plants for um, the health of the plants and and because um, I also think I just think about chemicals. That's my thing is is what chemicals are we, and you know, I I want it to be as as little as possible for. Um, for all the critters and for the people and the dogs walk, you know. Yeah. Well, the answer <laughs> to that crap. is. For, for chemicals aside, plants are the best food source for wildlife. And think about, here, just a, a couple things to think about when you're having this, this internal kind of conversation with yourself of, oh, I, maybe I just want to put out a bird feeder. That'll, that'll be good. That'll help out the birds. Well, number one, 
only a handful of bird, bird species will actually visit a feeder. So, you know, if you think that a feeder is, is going to be a good substitute for habitat, it just unfortunately isn't. Um, you know, number one, birds have to eat seeds in order to visit a feeder because most feeders are seed feeders. Yes, there are nectar feeders for hummingbirds and, you know, sewage feeders for woodpeckers and things like that. But um, A, they, they have to eat the foods that feeders can offer. B, they have to be a species that is sort of bold and gregarious enough to want to come out into the open and be around a bunch of other birds. And that, again, limits the kind, the number of species that will actually use a bird feeder. There's many species that are just too shy or aloof. Um, they want to be undercover all the time that are never going to visit a feeder. Um, and, you know, feeders need to be refilled. If you don't clean them regularly, you know, in some instances they can spread bird disease. Um, you know, so feeders are okay as long as you do it in moderation, do it, um, you know, keep them clean and also have good natural habitat around. You know, you have to fill a feeder. It's actually labor and you have to clean it. But you plant a native berry producing shrub. That's also a caterpillar host plant, and you just fed the birds for the entire year, probably for decades, just by that one act with that one plant. And if it's native, it doesn't take as much water, um, right. and it's it's more cost effective. You know, I'm, I remember getting crazy with bird seed. Oh yeah, putting out for the quail, and yep. you don't need pages <laughs> for them. You need a whole bag. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's not cheap, right? That's the other factor there too. And so again, nothing wrong with feeding the birds, but I always say. Bird feeding is often is oftentimes better thought of as something that helps that benefits us. It gives us a chance to see and observe birds up close regularly, you know, in the same spot every day. And you know, if you keep that in mind, and the and the just the fact that feeders aren't habitat, and you make sure you have good habitat in addition to whatever feeders you put out. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with feeders, but um, but you know, for me. I travel so much, I don't have time to keep a feeder cleaned and, and refilled, so I focus on my native plants. I've got burying shrubs, I've got uh, flowering plants that provide nectar and pollen to the pollinators, but I leave, and this is another tip that goes right along, by the way, with leaving your leaves where they lie. If you can, leave your perennials, leave their dead stalks standing. Um, number one, uh, and grasses as well, uh, when they go dormant in the winter, because number one, um, oftentimes, you know, when the, the flowers are done blooming, they'll be filled with seeds. And birds like goldfinches and various sparrows and doves and quail are going to feed on those seeds all fall and winter long. And if you, you know, so in other words, if you get overly tidy and, you know, at this time of the year or as soon as it gets cold enough for your, your perennials to die off at the surface, and just you know survive as roots for the winter. If you cut everything down to the ground at that point, you're removing a really important food source for the birds. The other reason why it's important is that there's tons of insects that overwinter in those dead, hollowed-out stems, including a lot of native bees. So by removing that, you're removing the overwintering habitat of a lot of those insects, many of which are important pollinators, many of which are beneficial predators of actual pests in your garden, and all of which are going to become a really important food source for the birds when they're starting to lay their eggs come spring. And so if you can leave those seed heads standing and those stalks standing through the beginning of the growing season, you know, depending on where you are, again, that's going to vary here in D.C. It's, I usually go in and do that cleanup in like early to mid-March before the plants really start growing. And then I have to worry about cutting the new growth. 
when I cut back the old. But at that point, many of the insects have emerged. The birds are already beginning to nest. And so it's a safer time to do it. Hmm. Nancy, we can call it the um, messy season. Yeah. We like messy <laughs> season. Well, yeah, we, I mean, when we had our um, one garden, when we lived out by Joshua Tree, and we just kind of left things. We just got to this mm -hmm. point, and we had even our fruits and vegetables were growing amongst the flowers, and they seemed to do fun. better, you know. And it was just a really interesting time to to watch who who ate what, and like mm -hmm. we had a mockingbird that just hung out every single morning, would visit mm -hmm. me at my window, you know. And they become you know friends, well, and that yeah. is the the attraction. Yeah, water. water. Water is a huge well, thing. Well, definitely in the desert where you guys are, water is a huge magnet. But that really is true anywhere. Um, oftentimes, you know, uh, water is even more of an attractant than food, um, especially in developed areas because oftentimes there's not a clean water source nearby. Um, and, you know, either all the streams are, are have been culverted and, and channeled underground or they, they're yucky and gross because of all the runoff from the roads. So, you know, even a simple bird bath becomes a really – important habitat resource for birds and other wildlife. And, you know, Nancy was right about, you know, getting the water out and, and having this viewing part, you know, that we get to enjoy and watch the birds. And, you know, you were talking about Cornell. It, isn't it something for kids, you know, during the fall to get involved with? I always want to bring it back to, like, families and kids oh, yeah. kids involved. It's such a huge thing, whether it's a school your church, your community center, your backyard, even your patio if you're in a condo or an apartment, um, whatever you can do, it helps. Water is one thing we can all do. We have water and it, it, I mean, we've watched baby birds come, you know, just for that and it gets so hot and we have to change it out. But there's this thing where you do develop like this relationship, you're coexisting, but it's pure joy to watch. Isn't there like a program for kids and, and you know, adults alike to become like, citizen scientists basically and and take note of who's coming through especially you know in the migration period to find out you know i know on facebook um, i belong to a facebook group and all of a sudden you'll see birds that you know cedar wax wings came to feed mm -hmm. i didn't know that they flew through but that was cool <laughs> you yep. know so, yeah there's a lot of good um citizen science programs out there i mean i i kind of think of our the national wildlife federation's garden for wildlife program is mm -hmm. uh, more of a citizen naturalist program maybe yeah. because you're not really collecting data that scientists are using it's more about you know getting involved participating following our recommendations for what you know what the elements of a wildlife habitat garden are and, and putting them out in your yard and then getting to observe and learn um, about all the cool animals that show up. Right. And you can absolutely engage kids in that. Kids, grandkids, nieces and nephews. You know, um, you know getting kids actively involved is, all, is always really important to keep their attention and to, you know, drive home learning and things like that. And, you know, it might be kind of boring for a young kid to just kind of sit there and watch the birds the way that you might. But if you involve them by getting them to pick plants that they want to put out and, and, and having them help you actually plant them, that's a huge, you know, act that kids will kind of then take ownership over the plant. Um, you know, we were talking about bird baths a second ago. Have them make it their job to keep the bird bath filled. And then when the birds show up, there's this like direct connection between what the kid did and, and how the animal was helped. So that's a really, you know, fun way of getting kids involved. You can even go further. Um, and there's all sorts of fun games and activities that you can do with kids in a wildlife garden. Um, and in fact, if you go to the National Wildlife Federation website and um, we've got an activity finder 
that is filled with really great fun ideas on you know, how to do a nature scavenger hunt in your backyard and all sorts of arts and crafts that you can do with stuff that you collect right from your wildlife garden, you know, flowers and, uh, you know, stems and all sorts of really cool things. So, yeah, Ranger lots of different Rick. ways to get kids involved. Yeah. Get Ranger Rick, man. The holiday season's coming. Get a subscription to Ranger Rick, man. All those those Ranger projects. Well, yeah, and that, that got me through school. Like, biology, I was like, mm -hmm. I was ahead in biology well just because i'm a i'm a geek out on this stuff but <laughs> but the ranger rick got me through biology i i walked in and was like i know what that is <laughs> exactly and in fact a lot of the activities that are in that activity finder that i just mentioned come straight from the pages of ranger rick magazine um, you know we've got <laughs> over 50 years of experience publishing ranger rick magazine and just have phenomenal ideas and resources for parents and caregivers that have young kids in their life to you know, get them introduced into the world of wildlife and nature. So definitely check that out. And thank you for the plug for the magazine subscription. Absolutely. What a fantastic way, you know, gift that you can give to the kids in your life. And I'll give a little bit more info because we actually have three different Ranger Rick branded magazines for different age groups. There's standard Ranger Rick, which is seven through 12. Then we have Ranger Rick Jr., which is like three through six. And then we have wow. Ranger Rick Cub, which is for the little guys. And it's obviously something that they don't read, but lots of big pictures. You can, you know, you, you, you read it with your little toddlers and things like that. So, you know, if there, whether you have little guys or you have older kids, we've got a Ranger Rick magazine for you. We also have a whole line of Ranger Rick books, also um, covering a whole wide age range. And I actually am involved with those. I actually edit them. Um, and make sure that all the information is accurate and the photos are correct and all of that. That's part of my job at the National Wildlife Federation. So, um, you know, quality control there. And, and they're really great books, you know, covering everything from, you know, backyard birds all the way to sharks. So depending on what your kids are interested in, you can, you know, you can get them those books too. Again, great holiday gifts that will also be educational. And the, the, the big cherry on the pie is, those subscriptions and those book purchases, a portion of the proceeds from that support the National Wildlife Federation's conservation work and frankly pay my salary. So go out and buy it. <laughs> Good. And, and thank you for taking the time to correct me on my Instagram post. <laughs> I just want oh. to say that. <laughs> uh, before hey, again, you go, go ahead. You can thank those Ranger Rick subscriptions. <laughs> I know, right? I, I love that. I, I mean, I grew up on it and um, those, those, I mean, I just learned, you know, the anatomy of plants and animals and, it was, it's cool. It's like our junior ranger programs in national parks that are so cool. I, mm -hmm. I know so many people that are adults going around and doing just junior ranger programs. That's their thing. It's a quick way to learn. Yeah. It's a quick way to, to learn. Um, but before you go, another cool thing to do. I love these projects that you guys are doing. I mean, it's like I said, the B, the B one with Be Sponsible, Don't Kill My Buzz. Mm -hmm. um, I started learning about native plants. I mean, it went, it just, one bee just turned into like this whole you know, I go down a rabbit hole with it. It's fun. Um, yeah. I had tarantula holes too uh, yeah. <laughs> lately. Um, but you have this uh, really cool contest you're starting. It's the first annual Garden for Wildlife photo contest uh, starting September 10th, 2018. Correct. Yep. So, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We have some good prizes. Um, yeah. This is just, I mean, we, every year, National Wildlife Magazine runs a big photo contest. Um, that usually starts in January and goes through the, uh, the the spring. And, you know, the winners get prizes and they get featured in the magazine. 
Um, and so we were thinking, well, it would be kind of neat to, to do a kind of a, a more specific photo contest specifically for all of the wildlife gardeners out there and the backyard birders and, you know, the, the, the people who put out bird feeders and things like that. And, and cause we've got a lot of people engaged with us through our garden for wildlife program mm-hmm. that do that. Many of whom actually go through and get their yards and gardens recognized as certified wildlife habitats from the national wildlife federation. So we decided to um, do this specific contest, this specific Garden for Wildlife contest, like um, which, as you said, is launching on September 10th. And we've got a few different categories that we're looking for, you know, submissions in. So we want to see pictures of actual wildlife in your yard or your garden. Um, we want to see pictures of native plants. Um, you know, pictures that show animals that you know, kind of are like that, that make it obvious that this isn't off in the wild somewhere, but it's literally in your own yard or your neighborhood, you know, photos like that. Um, and we're going to be giving away prizes. The grand prize winner is, um, is going to get a thousand bucks, which is pretty awesome. The runner up is going to get 500 and we're going to have uh, category winners as well that are going to get things like, uh, we have some special little prizes like bird feeders and copies of, of our, our, our books on wildlife gardening. So it's definitely going to be, there's some fun incentives to do it. And of course, who doesn't love to show off all of the cool wildlife that's showing up in their yard? So hopefully folks, um, you know, out there listening will want to participate. And again, what you, all you need to do is go to our website. Um, you can Google Garden for Wildlife. And if you go there, it'll be featured prominently. Um, and if you can remember the URL, it's NWF as a National Wildlife Federation dot org slash garden. So again, NWF.org slash garden will take you right to the Garden for Wildlife website. You can get tons of information on how to create a wildlife garden. That's where you fill out the application to have your yard or your garden recognized as a certified wildlife habitat. And it's where you will go to find information on how to participate in our Garden for Wildlife photo contest. Awesome. And cool. sign up for the newsletter when you're there, too, because you get all kinds of good tips in, in the newsletter as well. So uh, gardening. That's right. And we also do giveaways for newsletter signups, too. Each month we do a giveaway for um, we take a name from all the new people that have signed up. And again, we give away things like bird feeders and nesting boxes and bird baths and books cool. and things like that. So um, you can do all of that right on the Garden for Wildlife website. And if you win these cash prizes, that means you get a whole new garden. <laughs> you can go to the native plant nursery and, and stuff that's right, that, yeah. you know? That's um, right. All good stuff. Thank you so much again for joining us, David. Always good information. And um, I'm going to be submitting my peccary photos. <laughs> Ooh, I can't wait. I can't I know, wait. <laughs> with the little babies and all. And, and phenopeplas. We'll have to send you some of those, too. There you um, go. But, yeah, it's fun getting involved uh, with these kinds of projects. It's just fun, and um, it's fun to share it with your friends on social media as well. Uh, so Absolutely. start having your contest through that, too. Uh, everybody, again, uh, David is up on Blend Radio and TV.com as uh, Garden for Wildlife Expert. And uh, also the website for National Wildlife Federation is nwf.org, put forward slash garden. And uh, you, you'll get gardening and have all kinds of tips, like you were saying, especially uh, there's stuff for kids as well. We want to thank our sponsor for today's show, which is Find Something Awesome, a book series by Matt Scott that teaches kids early in life so the wisdom and life lessons adults get from self-help books. Very cool stuff. Check it out at findsomethingawesome.com. He likes to sponsor this because gardening for wildlife is awesome. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> um, also, Big Glen Radio, thank you for joining us. Uh, we air Sunday through Friday. The whole schedule is up on bigblendradio.com. You can listen to shows go live or anytime on demand. 
And we've got a special song for you, David. The brand okay. new single. It's from uh, from the Madisons who are up in the Smoky Mountains. And uh, this is their brand new single from their upcoming album. It's called About Tomorrow. And uh, everyone, we love playing their music on the show. We'll have to get them back up. And hopefully we're going to go jam with them when we get up to the Smokies this cool. fall. Uh, go to madisonsmusic.com and connect with them. But this is a brand new single, and we had to play it for David because it's called Dove because of the birdie. <laughs> it's all about Yay. the bird. <laughs> so here it is, everyone. Take care and enjoy your gardens and the wildlife. Here's Dove. Now you know You're on the dead on right track You had to go Through time and space And still try to make it back Now you know Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better... 
You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it, if you have the right tools, and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great.